0: that yeah, should be back on now so first samuel chapter 4 verse or first samuel chapter 4 um through chapter 7 this morning. So, at times, because it's, this is Old Testament narrative, we'll slow down and kind of go verse by verse. At other times, we'll kind of summarize sections. Again, just so we don't spend the next 20 years um, in this book. But uh, so far, in the few short weeks that we've been in the book of 1 Samuel, we've seen three primary theological themes that have shown up. And again, as I've shared, they sort of serve to help us understand the book. The first is that God is a God who saves, which should not surprise us. That's the message of both the Old and the New Testament. God has a redemptive plan. The second is that God opposes the proud but exalts the humble. And then the third principle, or the third um, theme, if you will, is that God protects his people but destroys those who oppose him. So these three different truths sort of resonate throughout this book and create the framework to how we understand the events that take place in it. So it's no surprise that we're going to see some of these same principles at work today in this text. What we're going to look at today uh, is probably best summarized as judgment and deliverance. We're going to see God do that. Judgment and deliverance. Our section starts out today with the Lord judging Israel, Eli, and the sons of Eli. So we're in uh, chapter 4 primarily. Let me give you kind of a summary of what takes place here. The last judge recorded in the book of Judges is actually Samson, and he seemingly defeated the Philistinians, if you remember that, brought down the, the pillars of the building they were all meeting in and crushed the Philist- Philistines, but that was more of a regional defeat, if you will. Remember, the judges served in different regions. They didn't serve all of Israel at one time, so there were different judges at different regions at different times, and so most of their victories over the Philistines in that were sort of regional victories, but... The Philistines were still active in Israel at the time, the land of Canaan. There were five primary Philistine strongholds or regions, if you will, led by five Philistinian kings. And so they still were a problem in Israel. And so even though Samson appears to have defeated the Philistines at the book of Judges, it was only probably more of a regional defeat. So over the 40 years that Eli now was judge in Israel, the Philistines continued to expand towards the east, and they were reaching into Israel, they were still um, bothering and tormenting Israel, so it, the Philistines were still their primary enemy at this time. Now in chapter 4, we learn that Israel was still at war with these Philistines, and they engage in two different battles. The first one, Israel's defeated. And actually 4,000 of Israel's soldiers are killed. If you look at the first three verses of chapter 4, it says, Thus the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to meet the Philistines in battle and camped beside Ebenezer while the Philistines camped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in battle array to meet Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the battlefield. When the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. And so in this first battle, we see that 4,000 Israels are killed. The second battle actually takes place when they take the Ark of the Covenant. Then and they go up for battle. It says that in the third verse, Let us take for ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may... Come among us and deliver us from our enemies. So at first, when they take this Ark of the Covenant on the second battle, the Philistines freak out. They recognize the Ark of the Covenant. They begin to freak out. They mistakenly assumed that because the Ark was now in the camp of the Israelites, that it would deliver them, or would deliver the uh, uh, Israelites from their army. What's interesting about this text is you notice that when the Israelites are... Talking about the ark, there isn't so much a reference to God as it is the ark. They believe the ark contained the power to deliver them. Their faith was mistrust. You might call it um, their faith was placed in the ark, not specifically in the God of the ark. It's kind of like when Christians place their faith in their faith, <laughs> having faith in their faith rather than faith in the Lord. And so that's what we find here with the um, Israelites as is they place this faith in this ark. Remember now, they're being disobedient at this point. Um, that was the story we saw all the way through the book of Judges. Israel's in a mess. The priests are in a mess. Um, there's all kinds of pagan worship, the worship of Baal and the Ashtara, all going on through Israel at this time. So they're disobedient. They're in rebellion against God. So God allows them to be tormented by the Philistines. And somehow they just miss that whole thing and decide, well, if we just have the ark, take the ark with us, we'll defeat the Philistines. Well, if you we look at verses 7 through 9, we find it says the Philistines were afraid... They said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who shall deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods. These are the gods who smote the Egyptians with all kinds of plagues in the wilderness. And I notice, who's their reference to there? Do you notice there's a word there that's plural? Gods. Yeah, gods. Why? Israel was supposed to be a nation of a single god, right? But the Philistines... Are remarking the fact that these gods that are behind this ark, well, it's because Israel was a nation who had been worshiping the Canaanite gods, and everything. this is a little telltale sign of the condition of Israel at the time, where their enemies recognized. Now, a little bit later, you are going to see that they recognized Yahweh as the God over Israel, but from the Philistines' perspective, Yahweh was just one of Israel's many gods. Okay, so we see here that Israel's sin was known by the Philistines, if you will. That they were worshiping many gods. Verse 9 it says, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, or you will become slaves of the Hebrews as they have been slaves to you. Therefore be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent, and the slaughter was very great. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. So Israel literally got crushed here. 30,000 soldiers destroyed by the Philistines, plus the 4,000 from the first battle, so 34,000 Israeli soldiers were destroyed. Now what's interesting is, if you see what happened with Israel with the first attack, they were totally clueless as to why God would allow them to be defeated. So again, they're, they're... totally clueless as to their disobedience and why they no longer had God's favor. Well, to continue summarizing this chapter 4, what happens is Eli learns of his son's death. Anybody remember what happens to Eli? It's a rather graphic story. Yeah, he, he's sitting in his chair. Um, the text says that he's a very large, very fat man. So he's probably not in very good health. That's the way the scriptures describe him. Those aren't my words. But... Um, but he basically falls back, breaks his neck, and dies. Anybody know why that's significant? Do you remember what Samuel told Eli? Whoops. Remember the when the Lord spoke to Samuel the first time. What did He tell him? He's going to judge Eli. So Eli had been warned that God was going to ultimately um, end his line, and so he takes the life of his sons, the two corrupt priests. Remember, his two sons were wicked, wicked priests, abusing the people, abusing the sacrifices, not honoring God. So he takes the lives of the priests, the sons. He takes Eli's life as well. That was part of Samuel's prophecy being fulfilled because God basically promised that he would not only take Eli's life but that later on he would cut off Eli's line of priests from Israel. So even though Eli's family, if you will, um, would continue on, he would not have any old men, so the men would die at young ages, there would be no elders in his family, but the line would continue, but they would no longer be able to serve as priests. So even though they were Levites, God would prohibit Eli's descendants from serving as priests in Israel as a form of judgment. And that we find happened with Solomon when Solomon basically took the last of the priests in Eli's line, kicked them out of the priesthood, and put somebody in his place. So this ultimately is a fulfillment. Now there's one last piece in this chapter that's important to us, and it's what happens with Eli's daughter-in-law. If you look down at verses 19 through 21, now his daughter-in-law... Phineas's wife was pregnant and about to give birth, and when she heard the news that the ark of God was taken and that her father-in-law and her husband had died, she knelt down and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said, Do not be afraid, for you have given birth to a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she called the boy Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken. And because of her father-in-law and her husband, she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been taken. So she basically names her son Ichabod, which means there's no glory. So those of you kids, when you maybe get married someday and have children of your own, don't name your kids Ichabod. means there's no glory. It was a prophetic statement. And it's because God had departed from Israel, and that was symbolized in his ark departing as well. And so, what we really see here is God's judgment upon Israel for their disobedience. So, that's the first act of judgment we see in this section. Now, chapter 5, we're going to summarize that as well. We're going to spend more time in chapter 6 and 7 breaking down the verses. But we also see that the Lord judges the Philistines in chapter 5. So, immediately upon capturing the Ark of the Covenant, the Philistines find themselves under the judgment of God. This is almost a comical part of the text because of what actually happens here. They first take the Ark to a place called Ashod, and they place it in the temple of their god, Dagon. Now, Dagon, and what they do with this, is rather interesting, because God is going to do some comical things here. When they place the Ark, the uh, Ark of the Covenant, and they put that before Dagon. They put it next to him. What's rather interesting about that is, because of the way they placed it, it symbolized that Dagon had had victory over the God of the Israelites. Okay, so they imagine this: they got this temple to their God Dagon, and they put the the, um, tabernacle, or the tabernacle, the Ark, in there, and they place it next to him, symbolizing that their God had defeated the God of the Israelites. But I want you to look at uh, verses 3 and following. It says, When the Ashadites rose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and they set him up in his place again. But when they arose early the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. And the head of Dagon and both of his palms of his hands were cut off on the threshold only the trunk of Dagon was left to him. So imagine this. You're the Philistines, you're all you know rejoicing because your God has defeated their gods, and you wake up the next morning and go into the temple where nobody had been in there overnight, and you see that your God is face down on the ground, prostate, symbolizing what? Worship. Some servants to the God of Israel, the Ark of the Covenant. Well, you scratch your head a little bit, well, huh, maybe it's a tremor. You know? So you pick your God up. And you've got to put your god back up on the mantle. You rearrange it, make it all look good again. Only to discover the next morning you show up and Dagon is once again face in the dirt, but now his hands are cut off. And likely it sounds like his feet were cut off as well. Now, what's significant about that is oftentimes armies at that time, when they would capture leaders, would cut off their hands. And they would do that as a form of judgment. They could no longer wield swords. It was a humiliation. So basically what God has done here is he has totally humiliated the pagan god Dagon in front of the Philistines. Okay? As I said, it's a bit comical. I'd almost love to see that in a Saturday Night Live skit. You know? So we have the first act of judgment there is God judging the the, the pagan god Dagon in front of the Philistines. Now the second act of judgment was to actually infect the residents of that city, Ashad, with tumors, rats, and then ultimately death. Look at verse 6. It says, Now the hand of the Lord was heavy on the the Ashadites, and he ravaged them and smote them with tumors, both Ashad and its territories. And so we find a little bit later that there's rats and other things as well. God just torments them with Plague, okay? Now, when the Ashdodites finally had enough, they decided to then send the Ark to another city called Gath. That's where um, Goliath is from. But the residents of Gath didn't fare any better under God's judgment because they also then had tumors and rats and death. So then they say, well, let's send it off to Ekron, and they send it off to another city, I want you to look at verse 10 because, again, a little bit of comedy here. So they sent the Ark of God to Akron, and the Ark of God came to Ekron, and the Akronites cried out saying, They have brought us the Ark of God of Israel around us to kill us and our people. So you basically what you find is that these Philistines now are trying to figure out what to do with this Ark because every city they take the Ark to, God does something to those people. And word starts to get around. So now you're sitting there thinking to yourself, please, don't send the Ark here. Please, don't send the Ark here. Please, don't send the Ark here. And so that's what you see with this last city. Is, oh no, they've decided to drop the Ark off here. And again, that city is, again, plagued. So you look at Akron in verses 11 and 12, it says, For there was a deadly confusion throughout the city. The hand of God was very heavy there, and the men who did not die were smitten with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. So they begged the five rulers of the Philistines. They took the kings, basically, from each of these five cities, and they cried out to them, basically, Send this ark back to Israel. We don't want it. So they went from this elation, how they captured this ark, to now get rid of it, because they realize what God is now doing. Well, they suffered for seven months. They did this, suffering under God's judgment. So finally, they decide they're going to send this thing back. But they not only send it back to God, but they put a guilt offering in it, realizing that they had offended God. And so you find in verses six it says, "Why do you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and the Pharaohs hardened their hearts? We have had or we have been severely dealt with. Did." They not allow the people to go and they departed. In other words, basically, some of the religious leaders were looking at these five Philistinian kings and saying, you better send this thing back and you better give a guilt offering because remember what happened to the Egyptians when they didn't listen to Moses and what God did to them? That's kind of striking to me because that was significantly... I mean, that was quite a ways in the past. I didn't do the math on this, but remember the Exodus and then you had the years in the wilderness for 40 years, and then you had the conquering of of, um, Canaan, and then you had the the years with the judges. So we're talking a couple hundred years probably here before, and yet the Philistines still knew the story of the Exodus and what God had done to his enemies. And so they basically come up with a scheme, and this is in some respects almost a little bit humorous as well. They come up with a scheme. to, to They're still not quite convinced that God is doing this. I mean, they're pretty sure... But just to make sure when they send it back, they say, well, let's take the the, um, Ark of the Covenant, we'll put it on a cart, and we'll get two, they call them milch cows, which were basically cows that were not um, used to pulling carts. Okay, So, you know, if you would put them on, you know, take cows that were used to pulling carts or whatever, you would expect them to just, you'd send them in a direction they would go. Well, they kind of thought, well, we'll take these totally inexperienced cows, that have never pulled a cart before, and we'll hook them up to this cart with the Ark of the Covenant, and we'll let them go. And if they go off back to Israel, then we'll know that it was God. But if they go out there and they just kind of wander around because they don't have any idea how to work together and to pull a cart, well, then we'll know that it really isn't God, and we'll get the Ark back. Well, they hook them up to the cows, they put these tumors inside, golden tumors, and these guilt offerings inside this thing, and, they say, and where do the cows go? Beeline straight for Israel. And so in the Lord, it says, these five kings kind of follow behind just to make sure. And certainly when it gets to Israel, they realize, okay. And so God now, in some respects, leaves the Philistinians alone. So his second act of judgment is against the Philistines and against their god, Dagon. Now there's a third act of judgment that takes place, and it's actually against the Levites. Let's go ahead and look at this. It's chapter 6, verses 13 and following. And this is a little bit um, startling, what happens here. Because it starts off, you would think, in a great way, and ends up in a not-so-great way. Chapter 6, verse 13. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh, that's where the cows went back to, okay? When the people, Israel, of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and they raised their eyes and saw the ark, they were glad to see it. Well, who wouldn't be? Because remember, the ark had been stolen. The glory of God is now gone from Israel. Um, you got some dude running around named Ichabod that reminds you every single day that God's glory is now gone. So they rejoice when they see it. It was probably a shock and a surprise. You know, imagine that seeing two cows walking up, pulling a cart, and your ark is sitting on the top of it. So the cart came into the field of Joshua, the Beth and stood there, and there was a large stone, and they split the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering. Boy, that's a... poor cows. <laughs> you know, I never even thought of that before. Like, Gee, they did a good thing, you know. Now you make them a burnt offering to the Lord. Verse 15, the Levites... Now that's key. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on a large stone, and the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices the day or that day to the Lord. When the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned to Ekron that day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned for a guilt offering to the Lord one for Ashad, one for Gaza, one for Eshkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. Those are the five Philistine strongholds. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both of fortified cities and of country villages, the large stone on which they set the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua, the Bethshemite. But then all of a sudden this happens. Verse 19, He, that's God, Struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck down all of all the people 50,070 men. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. The men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kerith Jerem saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord, come down and take it up to you. Is that startling to anyone? I mean, the ark comes back, the people are rejoicing. They make a sacrifice to the Lord, they burn these cows and this burnt offering to God and rejoice and all of a sudden God takes and kills over fifty thousand of them. Anybody wonder why? Here's what's interesting about this Beth Shemesh was a Levite city. Anybody know what that means? Who are the Levites? Had. they were the priests. God had established in Israel, he gave each one of the tribes their own region, except for the Levites. The Levites didn't get a region. They got cities within those regions. Okay? It was God's way of providing for the Levites. And so Beth Shemesh was a Levite city. It was populated by priests. So if you were to go there, think of the Vatican. Okay? You go there and there's priests running right all over the place. Well, you go to Beth Shemesh, and a huge part of that population would have been priests, would have had their wives and their children. But there were also others that lived in those cities that were not priests. But they were populated pretty heavily by priests, because that's what they were. They were priestly cities. Okay? So that's what we have here. That's the city that they went to. Now, as priests, they were expected to know the law and to care for God's tabernacle but also the Ark of the Covenant. And there were specific rules related to the Ark of the Covenant. One of them was that the Ark was to be covered, was not to be looked upon. The only one that could do that was the high priest who would go into the Holy of Holies. And so when the Ark of the Covenant Covenant was in the tabernacle, there was a screen that hid it from view. So even the priests could not gaze upon it. Not only that, when they would transport the Ark of the Covenant, they always had to cover it first before they transported it to prevent the people from gazing upon it. Now, I don't understand all the reasons for that or why God did that, but there was the, the Ark was considered sacred and holy, and for part of that, it was to be treated in a specific way. It represented the presence of the Lord, and so there were certain rules applied to that, and one of them, again, was that it was to be, in some respects, hidden from view. Now with that in mind, what did these priests do when the ark showed up? Did you catch what was in the text there? Go ahead and back and read that. What did the priests do? And why might that be offensive to the Lord? Remember when it comes in, there's, a, there's something really large there. What was their large object? This big stone, right? We're not probably talking, you know, we're talking probably a boulder, huge boulder. And what did they do with the ark? They took this Ark, they put it up on this boulder on display for everybody to see a direct violation of the law. They put it on display. Now, in one respect you'd be saying, but isn't that a good thing? No, it wasn't because it violated the law. It took a holy, sacred object that was to be hidden. There was supposed to be still mystery that surrounded it and put it on public display for all to see. There's a statement here that's a little bit challenging because it says that these men had looked into the ark. Now what's interesting about that is that generally speaking, the way that um, the way that the English texts translate it, but the Hebrew word that's used there can be translated at or into. And the, the translator has to make a decision as to whether it's at or in into the text here most translations i'm sorry say that they had looked into the ark well imagine 50,000 men all standing in a line one after another like a buffet going oh let me look in and the next one let me look in let me look just the sheer logistics i think that the text probably should be better translated as they had looked at or gazed upon that in other words there were 50,000 priests in that city all gazing and looking upon the ark not walking up to it and looking specifically into it. Remember, it's up on display, up on this big boulder. So the sheer logistics of 50,000 men walking up, climbing up on the boulder, looking into the ark, probably not the best way to translate it. And again, it's because the, the Hebrew word can either either be looked into or looked at. And I think probably looked at is a much better understanding. Now you're going to also notice that some Bible translations say that only 70,000 men were killed. In fact, the NIV, I think. Anybody got an NIV? Does it say 70,000 men were killed? Or 70 men were killed? Yeah, 70. Um, I think the ESV and the Christian Standard Version also say that. But most of the other translations, your more essentially literal translations, like the New American Standard, the NET, the King James, all say 50,700 men. the reason for that, all your ancient manuscripts say 50,000 men. Josephus is the only record we could find that says only 70 men. Why some of the English translations decided to go with Josephus instead of what the biblical text actually says? Not sure. Probably, again, because of the logistics. 50,000 men couldn't look into the ark. But 70 could. The problem that I have with that is that the text says that there was a great slaughter. That's the same exact word used when God killed 30,000 Philistine. I'm sorry, of 30,000 Israeli men. Great slaughter isn't 70. A great slaughter is 50,000. And so I think, textually speaking, what we have here is 50,000 men, most likely priests, because it says that of the men, 50,000. So I think what we're looking at here is, God didn't kill all the men in the city. What he did was he killed the priests because they had violated the law. Now, the other thing we have to keep in mind here, the priests were corrupt. Remember what we learned in the beginning of this book. The priesthood was corrupt and at the head of that priesthood was Eli and his two wicked sons. But the text indicates they weren't the only ones doing it. And so it's not likely that God annihilated them simply because of this one bad act but rather maybe as a sign to the rest of the priests. How does that fit into the themes that we've been looking at here? Well, God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. He destroys those who are in opposition to him but protects those who are his. These priests were the ones who led Israel into worship of the Canaanite gods. They were the ones that were at fault. So we find God judging them here. So we find that at least so far in our text today there are three different judgments where God reaches out and he judges Israel, he judges the priests, and he judges the Philistine. Now, we can't end there because there's actually good news in all this. I want you to look at chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. We now see a glimmer of hope because we now see where God delivers Israel. Chapter 7, we'll start in verse 1. I think I'll read probably the first... Uh, Six verses or so. And the men of Kerath Jerem came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar the son to keep the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark remained at Kerath Jerim, the time was long, for it was twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve Him alone, and He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtoreth and served the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, "Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you." They gathered to, Miz- to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day. And said, "And said they there, we have sinned against the Lord." And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. So what do we have here? Twenty years after God killed these priests, Israel finally began to lament. It means a sensed their sin. They began to um, express remorse for what they had done. Now, ultimately, this was probably about 60 years after Samson's death. So, God had been allowing the Philistines to oppress Israel for at least the last 60 years here. The oppression and then God's silence apparently led Israel to do some self-reflection. I think I had shared this once before. You know, the the biblical text here tells us that um, God had, for the most part, been fairly silent in Israel with no prophets, hadn't spoken, and yet He begins to speak to Samuel. And now God begins to speak to Israel. Oftentimes in the Old and the New Testament, God kind of goes silent before judgment. In fact, what's interesting is if you look at the book of Revelation, before God begins to pour out His wrath, there's 30 minutes of silence where God doesn't say anything. And so that's usually a sign of impending judgment when God goes silent. And he had been silent here for years, and now he finally begins to speak. And when he begins to speak is ultimately when you find his wrath, but then also his deliverance. And so we find here that God had been fairly quiet, but now Samuel is now preaching once again to Israel. The thing that Israel probably learned here is that God's deliverance doesn't come without repentance. You notice what Samuel tells them? Verse 3 says, Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all of your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and you direct your hearts to the Lord, and you serve Him alone, He will deliver you from the hands of the Philistines. And so, God's deliverance ultimately is tied to Repentance. Notice they didn't just say, oh, we screwed up, we're bad. It says that they put aside these gods, something God had been telling them to do. So Israel finally responds. It says they stopped serving the Canaanite gods. And then it says that Samuel, verse 5, began to intercede for them. He prays for them. They make their sacrifices. They confess their sins. They come right out and they say, we've sinned against the Lord. And it then says that Samuel judged them, which means he became their, if you will, their leader. He um, became the one that told them right from wrong, served as a prophet. And as a result, look at what happens in chapter 7, verses 7 through 14. Now, when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. You know, it's kind of, I find this rather funny because these Philistines even though they had victory over Israel when they brought the ark in they passed it around for seven months there's no army there it's just an ark and yet God just destroyed them simply because the ark was there they've got to think you know the Israelites have the ark back you know but they get arrogant and proud and they go up against Israel verse 8 then the sons of Israel said to Samuel do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines remember the beginning of this story they didn't cry out to the Lord with the Philistines they went and they grabbed the. You know, they first went out all by themselves and they got their helmets handed to them you know then they decided well we'll take the ark with us no indication they cried out to the Lord there and they got 30,000 men put into the dirt this time what do they do they cry out to the Lord because they recognize who it is that fights their battles. They've learned their lesson in some respects here. Now it's unfortunate that different generations don't learn that same lesson, but in this case, the this particular generation of Israelites recognize that God is their savior. So they don't go and fight the battle themselves. They don't go and grab the Ark of the Covenant and take it into battle. Instead, they cry out to the Lord. Verse 9, Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel. And I love this phrase. And the Lord answered him. Why is that important? When you look at the Old Testament, the idea of God answering means you received his favor. It's an action of God. It isn't just that he hears, but to answer mean that God, means that God is not going to act on your behalf. And so he answered Samuel. He delivers Israel is exactly what we would expect. Verse 10, Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near the battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines, and he confused them so that they were routed before Israel. The men of Israel went out to Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as below Bethkar. So basically, God destroyed the Philistines here. Something to keep in mind here. um, The Israelites weren't able to make weapons in Israel. Remember, the Philistines prevented any blacksmiths from working there? So they basically had some farm equipment. That was their primary tools. And so the only way they could have been delivered ultimately... Was by God doing what God did. He confused their army, made them all rout and run around each other, and made so much confusion that Israel, high a lot less trained militarily probably than the Philistines. Um, was able to rout them. Verse 12 it says, Then Samuel took a stone and set it between Mizpah and Shen and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. It means until the rest of Samuel's life. The cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored. So not only did Israel rout the Philistines, but they got back the cities that the Philistine armies had taken from them. So God had gone above and beyond just delivering Israel. He restored to Israel what was rightfully Israel's. Israel, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines, so there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. I'll just read the last couple of verses here. Now Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He used to go annually on a circuit to Bethel and Gilgal and Mizpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then his return was to Ramah, for his house was there. And there he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. What a great ending to the story. We have these three judgments, if you will. And we see in that these principles that we've talked about so far in the book. That God truly does... um, Oppress, if you will, those who are opposed to him and gives grace to the humble, which is what we see here with with the Israelites, where they finally humbled themselves, recognized their sin, confessed their sin, repented of it. God acts on their behalf. God opposes the proud. We see that three different places in here. We see him opposing Israel in the beginning for their arrogance and their sin we see him opposing the priests and destroying the priests for doing what they did we see him destroying the Philistines because of their opposition to the Lord as well but then we also see him as a God who saves as he delivers Israel when they repent and when they confess what's interesting to me about this is um, and I get more and more convinced of this as I as I continue to grow and mature in my my faith with with, uh, the Lord and the more I study, the more I spend in God's word is how significantly and how profoundly the gospel is portrayed through things like this. And it really is. I mean, if you, if you look at, you know, each of us that claim the name of Christ did so at a time because we recognized our sin. We did it at a time where we recognized that God is a God who judges. God is a God who um, has every right to pronounce judgment on us. Now, we may not. Some of us may not have had quite the the impression of that. I mean, I literally, um, when somebody shared the gospel with me, made it pretty clear that Mike, if you don't want to go to hell, there's an answer, you know. So in my mind, I had seen God as this God of wrath and judgment, you know. Others maybe go through a difficult time and realize that life is not what it should be, and maybe they don't recognize the significance of God's wrath, but they recognize something is really not right. And so when we find ourselves humbling ourselves before the Lord, um, that's what God saves. And so it's interesting that you know the gospel is not a New Testament thing. It is a Bible thing. And while we may not see the name of Jesus right here, we do see a symbol, a what's called a type of Christ in Samuel. Samuel, in this book here, is an intermediary between God and Israel, is he not? He's there to teach the truth. He's there to stand before Israel, to intercede between God and Israel. When Israel confesses our sins, Samuel makes the sacrifice before God. I mean, it's a pretty amazing thing to see how profoundly the gospel is communicated through texts like this. And since the New Testament tells us that this is a tutor to lead us to Christ, it means that we learn things about our relationship with with God and Christ. God treats us as Christians the same way that he has throughout history, his people. We've seen that with um, him saving us. He saved us because we repented of our sins. Did he not? He continues to save us, if you will. Um, He continues to protect us. Paul tells us we have nothing to fear because our salvation is now wrapped up in Christ. Just like the Israelites had nothing to fear. Now in their case... A little bit different you know we have our security in christ because we're saved and we're permanently saved israel not quite the same thing israel had to remain in obedience for to continue to earn god's favor but it's because we're dealing with a nation they're not individuals so i love the fact that we continue to see the gospel sort of worked out in all of this and um you know sometimes as christians we might get a little bit forgetful you know um and i shared this probably more times you guys can to remember but one of my favorite statements from Earl Rodmacher who was uh, the president of Western Theological Seminary was "So many people get saved and get stuck which means we sort of say that sinner's prayer we get you know we get saved and we're all excited and then we get stuck in life and we fall back into old sinful patterns and we forget that that in some respects puts us in opposition to God God won't take our salvation away but certainly, He chastises and he corrects because what he really wants is for us to give him our whole heart and to continue to live in obedience and to continue to have his favor. So just like Israel continued to um, struggle with that and fall out of God's favor, Christians in the same way, while we might not lose our salvation, sometimes can find ourselves in a position where we're not really experiencing all that God has for us, all the blessings and the peace. And we have to remember... Maybe it's time for us to think through some of that and think, have I been humbling myself? Have I been arrogant and proud? Have I forgotten all that God has done for me? So I recognize that, yeah, he'll judge my sin. I don't get a free pass because I hate those bumper stickers. You know, Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven. There's some theological truth there, but it's a little bit arrogant and proud. It gives the impression, I don't have to worry about it. I don't know, I can think of some New Testament folks that had to worry about it you know, Ananias and Sapphira come to mind you know um, so anyway, I, I won't uh, diatribe on that anymore, but I just love the fact that we continue to see, um, not just these three themes if you will, throughout the book of First Samuel, but the gospel itself